Zero Television uh, in uh, New York, and I subsequently went to work for the United Nations. And in fact, just before we came on, uh, Sam and I were talking about um, the United Nations vis-a-vis uh, -vis what they call the Palestine issue. And essentially, uh, Palestine remains the United Nations' longest-running uh, unresolved issue. Uh, and uh, this is an issue, of course, that we'll return to at Palestine Deep Dive um, <coughs> when we come back, probably, in the autumn, because this is the last uh, interview of our current series uh, until September. Um, but of course, Palestine Deep Dive, our daily newsletter will be coming out every day. If you haven't subscribed, please do. Uh, well, look, Sam, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. I think you're um, in Ramallah. Uh, and I should just, for people, uh, many of you will, of course, know Sam, uh, but those of you who don't, um, we're delighted to have him here. Uh, Sam uh, is, as I was just saying, based in Ramallah and the West Bank and the occupied Palestinian territories, uh, an a Palestinian-American born and raised in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, and is managing partner of Applied Information Management, uh, AIM, a consulting firm specializing in business development with a niche focus on startups and providing executive counsel. Uh, Sam was instrumental in the establishment of two publicly traded firms, the Palestine Telecommunications Company and the Arab-Palestinian Shopping Centre. He is uh, involved with the Palestinian Policy Network and an advisory board member of the Open Society Foundation's MENA office. And Sam also serves in various capacities in several community organizations, including his co-founder and emeritus member of Americans for a Vibrant Palestinian Economy. He writes regularly on Palestinian affairs and has been widely published in many leading outlets. Uh, he's co-author, I beg your pardon, co-editor of Homeland, uh, an oral history of Palestine, the Palestinians from 1993. Uh, and Sam is an associate and bachelor's of uh, computer technology from Youngstown State University. Um, and uh, also the, you'll have, you have to stop if I'm mispronouncing these things, Sam. Um, the Kellogg Reconati International Executive MBA, a joint program of the Kellogg School of Management at the Northwestern University, and the Re Reconati Business School at Tel Aviv University. Well, that's quite a biog. Thank you. You made me feel quite old. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thank you so much, Sam. And I think really we, we, we start... Um, uh, if, if we may, I know we're going to be having a special focus on this, uh, the whole issue and idea behind uh, confederacy. Uh, but before we do, I wonder if we could start with what um, uh, Wolf Blitzer, for our, our American friends who watch CNN know Wolf Blitzer, he, has, uh, he always says, happening now. So happening now. Um, yesterday, Human Rights Watch very influential international human rights organization published a report uh, and set out very clear evidence of war crimes. And these have been attributed particularly to the Israeli state, the Israeli military, but also Palestinian militant groups. I suppose really with this grim cycle of violence, Sam, um, this is not the first time that human rights um, abuses have taken place on an organized scale, uh, it would be claimed. Um, the question is, will it make any difference this time? Does the fact that this is quite an early response uh, by Human Rights Watch, which is increasingly influential, do you think this will have any real impact um, on what happens at the United Nations, what happens in the international community, what happens to Israel? Thanks, Mark, and thanks to Palestine Deep Dive's team for having me on. I know there's a lot of uh, effort that goes behind the scenes to, to bring these uh, to fruition. So, and I must note that I'm, I'm impressed with Deep Dive's programming and I'm an avid follower of your email and interview series. So keep up the good work. To your question, sadly, we've been here before. Human Rights Watch report noted that Israeli forces and Palestinian armed groups carried out attacks during the May 2021 fighting in Gaza and Israel. 
that violated laws of war and apparently amount to war crimes. They went on and said, quote, the Israeli military and Palestinian authorities have a long track record of failing to investigate laws of war violations committed in or from Gaza, unquote. Three thoughts to put this report in perspective. Number one, a war crime is a war crime no matter who commits it, period. Two, there is a key principle in international law, which is my motivating guiding light yet, and that is the principle of proportionality. If I slap you, Mark, God forbid, you may have the right to slap me back, maybe even step on my toes, but you do not have the right to expel me from my home, dispossess me from my belongings and land, put me under military occupation for 54 years, put me under a hermetic seal for 15 years, bomb me, my family, and my house, and my neighborhood every few years with the most sophisticated warplanes known to mankind, deny me clean water and 24-7 electricity. The list is long. Think about it for a second. If you are a teenager in Gaza today, 15, 16, 17 years old, you do not know what it means to have 24-7 electricity. You never experienced that in your life. Reflect on that for a second. So proportionality is the second kind of thought that I would keep in mind here. And the third, expect Palestinians to resist. Some, the minority I may add, even with violence. I wonder what other Western countries would do in the same situation. I know in New York City, if there's an electricity blackout for three hours, total chaos breaks out. The lights have been out in Palestine for 73 years. And we are still begging, amazingly, for international law to be applied before it's too late. The Palestinian level of patience is truly historic, and it may be our Achilles heel as well. Sam, and actually, we've just had a, a message sent in by um, David Seddon, who I have to say, I have to say this each and every time he is not knowingly a relative of mine, uh, but David um, was one of my lecturers at the University of East Anglia at the School of Development Studies. Um, uh, David says, um, Human Rights Watch is an American-based organization, and I think it will have an influence in my view. Um, so that's, that's quite promising. But I mean, we were talking also just before we came on air about the way in which this latest fighting, and you mentioned proportionality, which is um, when it comes to Western media, and I'm, and I'm thinking actually being quite particular about it, the BBC will always talk as though it's some kind of even-handed, in an even-handed way that it, both sites are equal and proportionate, um, when we really know that that's not the case. What was perhaps a little bit different this time round was the way in which we didn't wait for international media to catch up. We were seeing so much of what was happening in Gaza being played out by citizen journalists, by people on the ground. Um, so what do you think? I mean, do you think that actually the Israelis have begun to lose the propaganda war because people can see much more clearly what is happening? Look, I mean, there is no silver bullet, not in the literal sense, nor in the document, documentation sense that will bring this conflict to an end. It's an accumulative process of struggle that will overturn the vote of military occupation. And in that sense, this report, in addition to many other reports, notably most recently the previous one from the same organization, Human Rights Watch, which notes that Israel is guilty of crimes of apartheid and persecution against the Palestinians. While we can't rely on documentation alone, to create the pressure on Israel that is needed, no one should underestimate the importance of mainstreaming human rights organizations uh, or mainstream human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch or is mainstream Israeli human rights organizations like Beit Salem, the largest, or Yeshdin, uh, that are calling reality for what it is, finally. Crimes of apartheid, persecution, and grave violations of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Yes, we've all seen now live how this occupation operates. But at the end of the day, my opinion is that social media is a key tool, but it is only a tool. I don't subscribe to the populist thinking that social media makes revolutions. People make revolution. 
And social media amplifies their collective actions. We do not have, um, we did not have in the first intifada, for example, social media. In the, in the first intifada, we shook the ground underneath the occupier and we caught the attention of the world. Uh, but what we had back in 1987, 1988, was 24-7 cable news mm -hmm. launching its operations. So every period comes with its own set of tools, and we must master all of them to be effective. It's not enough to say that social media doesn't make revolutions. That doesn't mean we can ignore it. It actually needs to be adopted, polished, uh, to be able to present our case in the most professional and convincing manner possible. And that's able to be done because the justice in our cause is amazing. Well, actually, David Seddon follows up on what you were just saying there, and he says um, the apartheid tag really upsets Israelis and Israeli apologists. Uh, but it is true that ultimately it's a collective action that is crucial. Um, I mean, we have, of course, seen that language, the, uh, the, the comparisons made much, much more directly. Of course, many people have been for many decades making the direct comparisons uh, with apartheid South Africa and apartheid uh, in Israel. Um, interestingly, some people uh, believe that the apartheid in Israel is, is actually worse than it was in South Africa. Um, it, it, and there are plenty of reasons for making that argument. Mark, um, may, I, may I make a note here? Mm -hmm. the, the crimes of apartheid don't have much to do today with South Africa per se. What happened in South Africa invoked a codification of a body of law called the crimes of apartheid. So whether it applies the situation here being like South Africa or a little bit different than South Africa is really not the issue today. The issue today is let's look at the crime of apartheid as codified in international law and then measure it against the reality in Palestine. When you do that, you will see that the crime of apartheid, this occupation passes that threshold without a benefit of the doubt. Uh, well, it, it, interestingly, that argument is obviously having quite an effect uh, on opinion in America. Um, and where you obviously spent so much of your life, and, and of course you'll, you'll be familiar um, with, the, with, with what's been happening within the Democratic Party. We can certainly see uh, lots of younger members taking a similar kind of view. I mean, do you think that increasingly um, the Democratic Party establishment in the US is out of step with a lot of its, uh, certainly its activist base, of course, but interestingly also with increasing numbers of, of Jewish American uh, Democratic Party supporters? Yeah, this is much more than a belief. It's actually a proven fact today in the US political reality. For example, the recent Pew survey reports, they had a recent one of 248 pages, a huge report about American Jews. And it showed that there is a growing disconnect between American Jews and Israel. Makes sense. If Israel is committing crimes against apartheid, uh, I would expect Jewish Americans, especially the younger generation, who is not tainted with the establishment of Israel, calling out Israel and remaining uh, true to social justice values, which I think is part of Judaism and should be embraced. In regards to the Democratic Party, the entire phenomenon of Bernie Sanders. Remember, Bernie Sanders got up two elections ago and said, Palestinians are human. And he got pushback. Mm. That's where the U.S. political system is today. And that says much more about the U.S. political system than it does about Palestinians. And then today you also have the squad and congressmen such as Mark Bocan in Congress. I mean, they are clearly showing a clear shifting of the winds. Um, it's a start. Uh, we're not there yet, but definitely there is traction in the right direction. Today, there's a myriad of Jewish American organizations speaking out against occupation in all shapes and forms. You have organizations such as Americans for Peace Now, J Street, Jewish Voice for Peace, all the way to If Not Now, um, along with several educational organizations that bring Jewish Americans to tour Palestine, and some of them for the first time ever in their life to meet Palestinians in the flesh. These are organizations like Encounter and Extend. All of these were not there in the States when I left 26 years ago. So this is significant progress. And when there's cracks within the Jewish American community 
And some of these cracks are very wide. Uh, I think this is also showing that not only are the winds shifting, but there is now traction on the ground in the right direction. And it will have to be sustained for there to be an output for it. I mean, paradoxically, you know, here in, in Britain, um, the, the, uh, the Jewish community has essentially been quite critical of uh, Israeli policy towards Palestine all the way through. And that criticism often found its voice most strongly, and of course, in the British Labour Party. Um, and, and you will have seen um, from where you are in Palestine and where you were in America, what's been happening recently in the British Labour Party, uh, which with the previous leader, Jeremy Corbyn, had probably the policy that was most um, conversant with international law when it came to Palestine. I mean, really that, it was, it was simpatico with international law. That doesn't make it uh, overly radical. But of course, we, we saw what happened. Um, so there's been a kind of retreat in Britain, um, but that's not necessarily reflected amongst a lot of Jewish Labour supporters, in fact, and a lot of other supporters, whether they're Muslim, Christian, or no religion whatsoever. But um, certainly there's a degree of fluidity, uh, to be sure. And certainly we're, we seem to be picking up um, this idea, really, that uh, people are not prepared to put up with this status quo. And I suppose that brings me on to this, uh, the next question, which, um, I mean, it came a little bit out of the blue, um, but uh, the former UN Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon, who throughout his time in office um, supported, of course, the uh, international uh, position of uh, uh, desire for a two-state solution um, in Israel-Palestine, wrote a, a very powerful piece in the Financial Times a few weeks back, um, which I'm sure you saw essentially saying it's time now for the United States to completely revisit its policy towards uh, a two-state solution and Israel-Palestine. And in fact, and he was writing as the deputy chair of the elders, which is a group of international former statesmen and women. Um, that was quite a powerful intervention, don't you think, Sam? I do. I mean, you really need to be blind today not to see that Israel is heading uh, to a devastating crash course with history. You really need to be blind. And I think that people are not blind. I think the powers to be see that and they're trying their best to articulate something to kind of ring the bell. A couple examples. President Bush Sr. saw that in 1991 when he held up $10 billion loan guarantees to Israel uh, to get them to try to stop the settlement building. And he said out of his own mouth that he was one lonely guy against a powerful political force. This is how a president of the United States sees the Israeli lobby not being able to be addressed. President Clinton saw this when he witnessed the signature of the Oslo Accords on the White House lawn. Put the accord details aside, but it's clearly the U.S. trying to step up the game. President Bush Jr., as bad as he was, even saw it. And in his roadmap, he introduced the word Palestine as uh, from an official perspective, and he also introduced a need to stop the settlements. And more recently, President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry, they saw it as well. And they articulated that by abstaining from United Nations Security Council Resolution 2334, which condemned settlements and called for differentiation in dealing with Israel. So it called on entities to deal with Israel as Israel, but not to deal with the Israeli occupied territories. That's exactly what Ben and Jerry's did. They followed what the UN Security Council resolution called for, and now they're getting beat up, beat up for it. So the, yes, the US sees the problem. That, th their problem in, is in acting in line with what they are witnessing. The US political system, and I would say the UK political system as well, uh, and to your point before about the UK, just your past employer had a documentary called The Lobby, and watch The Lobby, and you'll know exactly why the UK is where it is at today. I highly recommend that. Um, but they see what's going on. The U.S. political system in the U.K. has been hijacked by a foreign entity called Israel. And this will make sure that the U.S. will continue to legislate itself in a corner until it becomes totally irrelevant. Unless, that is, real leadership emerges that will require community action. Real leadership in the U.S., or in the U.K. for that matter, is not going to come to its senses 
and take the political steps required and spend the political capital required unless the community comes forward and makes the price of remaining in office the need to be able to act to hold Israel accountable. So they go hand in hand. Community action at this point is of utmost importance. Well, I'm here with Sam Bahur, so please do send in your questions. Um, I think we just had a comment. This is from Zuday. Uh, Zuday says, um, a 12-year-old has been shot today, shot dead today by an Israeli soldier, but of course no one will talk about it. I haven't seen that report myself, but tragically, as we know, these are almost daily occurrences. Exactly. Um, Sam, I'm going to come back to you because you actually you mentioned in passing Ben and Jerry. And of course, some people watching are thinking, why are they talking about uh, Tom and Jerry, the cartoon characters? But we're not. We're talking about Ben and Jerry ice cream, uh, which we, we learned this week is actually, according to Israeli Prime Minister Bennett, anti-Semitic ice cream. And when I, I came in a little bit late to this, uh, this story and I saw this claim about anti-Semitic ice cream from Ben and Jerry and I began to scratch my head because I've been past uh, the Ben and Jerry ice cream factory in Vermont and uh, I, I know that the two brothers were both American Jewish uh, uh, men and great supporters of Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, is also a Jewish American uh, progressive, uh, pro-peace, pro-Palestinian pro peace deals how how on earth for people just coming into this sam how on earth does uh, ben and jerry ice cream get to be called to be anti-semitic ice cream by prime minister bennett you will need to ask him since this makes totally no sense whatsoever or should i say it makes perfect lunatic sense the israeli government has called ben and jerry's move anti-semitic a new form of terrorism and similar kinds of uh, tags the Israeli game is clear. Raise the price as high as possible to make others stop holding Israel accountable for its actions. They will fail, just as the ministry they created to undertake this assignment, the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs. It was established a couple years ago to make the world pay for holding Israel accountable. And it has fall, fallen fat, flat on its face. Um, the community-driven global and grassroots BDS movement, which runs on a shoestring budget, basically tripped up that entire ministry, which wasted tens of millions of dollars and still is wasting that kind of money on some kind of Israeli propaganda campaign. But you can't sell spoiled mayonnaise, no matter how much you have good marketing, or no matter how much you throw money at a marketing campaign. Israel has a bad product. It's a toxic product called Israeli military occupation for 54 years. They can't sell that no matter what they want to do. And Ben and Jerry's is one step in a very long process that many others have stepped forward as well. In Europe, you have pension funds stepping forward and divesting from Israel. You have companies that have exited settlements prior to Ben and Jerry's. But again, mainstreaming is uh, important in such struggles. And I guess Ben and Jerry's being a household name uh, is having an impact that is uh, going to hopefully uh, make a difference and others hopefully will follow to show Israel that this is not even a boycott of Israel. The, the amazing thing is all of this is saying is being said about Ben and Jerry's being anti-Semitic, being terrorists, uh, and they have remained engaged to sell their product inside the state of Israel. So what this is revealing more about Israel's endgame. If Israel's endgame is to annex the entire land between the river and the sea, they're making very clear that this is their end game. And Ben and Jerry's is helping us to reveal that Israeli hand. Uh, so anyone trying to sell us that Israel is still involved in some kind of peace mindset, uh, just got the answer to that by the overreaction to Ben and Jerry's. Well, thank you, Sam. And, and we we're gonna come on to the main part of the show shortly, but uh, just before we do, I mean, uh, following on from that uh, and what you were just saying then about essentially a, an almost hysterical response by the Israeli government, um, the no, knows no bounds uh, and it being counterproductive because 
people can see it for being as ridiculous as it is, because all, as you were saying, Ben and Jerry's is just not going to sell ice cream in illegally occupied parts of the Palestinian territories, not all of Israel. It's not a boycott of Israel. But the question, I suppose, is, um, uh, you know, when this when this extreme language is used, does that not actually have a real effect on those who have genuine concerns about anti-Semitism or racism? Because it completely diminishes uh, what that actually is. Of course, absolutely. I mean, this is much, this story is much more than just about BDS and if it fits or doesn't fit. Of course, it does not fit. B and J, ben and Jerry's did not sign on to the BDS movement's call, which goes much further than boycotting settlements because the BDS understands, rightfully so, that settlements are not islands by themselves. They're an extension of an Israeli policy, an Israeli budget, Israeli military and security, et cetera, et cetera. Without the state of Israel, there are no settlements. Um, but BDS is getting stronger by the day because more and more people are being exposed to the blatant violations that Israel is committing against international law. Uh, this is causing death and destruction like the person who wrote in. Every single day we have such deaths. And we report it. I mean, our media reports it. What the Western media covers is a different story. We must keep in mind, though, BDS is not a religion. It's a tool of nonviolent resistance. We have a big puzzle of nonviolent tools of resistance, and BDS is a big piece in that puzzle. But folks are free to choose any piece of that puzzle that they are comfortable with, as long as they are focused on holding Israel accountable and levying a cost on Israel for its actions. This is the only way that Israel really is going to change its course. In a way, I can imagine an Israeli strategy that says this week, uh, let's go haywire against Ben and Jerry's in order to throw dust in everyone's eyes. Why? So they don't see the more damaging revelation that has come out this week, that Israel is a state sponsor of state terrorism by selling rogue states, authoritarian states, their technology to be able to break into phones. Um, that's the real story here. That's the story that can have a financial impact at a very high level. Uh, settlers not buying some ice cream is not going to bring Israel to its knees. So from attacking ice cream makers to breaking into phones, the world is starting to be introduced to the real Israel. And I think that's good because we've been seeing this and talking about it for a very long time. It took the NSO story and the Ben and Jerry story and the one after it and the one before it to start to bring it to the surface. And the more people that see the real Israel, I believe will kick into gear to hold Israel accountable. Sam, I wonder if you could clear something up uh, for us here because um, yes, I mean, the smokescreen, very, very handy, Ben and Jerry's, because mean, meanwhile, this company Pegasus, as we as we now know, has been peddling this software all around the world and all sorts of journalists, dissidents. Um, this is this is severely worried a bunch of, uh, of of Western governments who are allies of Israel. My, I suppose the question is, what relationship does the state has have with Pegasus? How involved was the Israeli state with Pegasus and with this bugging of dissidents and journalists around the globe? This is a very, very good question because Israel has perfected the ability to outsource actions that it wants done to semi-quasi-governmental, non-governmental organizations. If we take the Pegasus kind of example, the Israeli Ministry of Defense must approve every sale of these products to foreign entities. So the state of Israel is part and parcel of the transaction. But we see, for example, the Jewish National Fund and other organizations that acquire lands under the auspices of a standalone non-governmental organization, but they really get a budget from the state of Israel and they're acting upon legislation that empowers them to acquire land, for example. So Israel has perfected this one degree away from the actual transaction, but anybody who spends time digging into the details learns that these are quasi-state organizations that would not exist if it was not for the approval and sometimes the budget of the state of Israel propping them up. And that's why the Jewish National Fund or Pegasus cannot hide and say, oh, it's just us, we're a standalone organization. No, you are part and parcel of a state apparatus, no matter how you're registered in the registrar of organizations. 
Well, thank you very much, Sam, for clearing that up uh, for all of us, actually. I mean, it's a very, very powerful point. It's been, it, I haven't seen this being made anywhere in the media. Um, so we have it here with Palestine Deep Dive and with Sam, what is really happening? Uh, we really ought to get on to the, um, to the great issue that we are going to be discussing, which is this whole concept of uh, confederation as a solution. I wonder if you could just begin, Sam, by just briefly kind of outlining how you think uh, a confederation uh, might work and how it might be possible to persuade people that it could work. Sure. I mean, many have classified me as someone who is passionate, a passionate advocate about confederation. Uh, I would not say that. I would say that after setting aside my emotions, reading a lot of history for a very long time, and taking a cold, hard look at the political calculus, I've come to see the value in confederation. And if anyone has a better idea, I'm all ears. But I warn folks, I'm hard to convince, and I've heard a lot in my life, and up until now, confederation is the one that has stopped. Before I describe confederation, we, as you had posted in the advertisement to this event, I wrote, I co-wrote with an Israeli friend of mine, Bernie Avashai, uh, an article in the New York Times that kind of laid this out. But there's actually two driving convictions for me to think about confederation or any other solution, if there is such a thing. One, I'm convinced that there is no military solution to this conflict, period. One side can't win, no matter how much of a military might and nuclear power they become, and one side can't lose due to the deep justice in their cause, definitely not because of their pristine leadership. It's more, though, the justice that's embedded in our cause. So there is no military solution. Secondly, Palestinians will accept no less than a full sovereign state. That state could be from the sea to the river, or that state could be what we've accepted, not me, what the Palestinian political agency has accepted to date, which is a state, let's call it New Palestine, in the occupied territory, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. So those are my driving kind of parameters when I think of resolutions to move us forward. Why now to talk about confederation? Actually, it's not something that has been discussed now only. The first article Bernie and I wrote was back in 2010. It was an op-ed in Haaretz, the Israeli English newspaper, and it was titled Independent and Interdependent. And there we made the case that there is no such thing in 2021 as an independent state, 100%. States sign on when they become members of the UN to treaties and protocols and conventions so although politicians in every state want us to think that they are one level below God, it's actually, they, they control maybe 30, for 30 to 40% of the policies of their state. The rest is all commitments that they've made in international agencies. But for the sake of this time talking about confederation, there are a couple of reasons why I felt it was important to highlight it. One, this whole debate, and you've been talking about it on your shows as well, of one state or two state, as if it's a menu item at a restaurant and we're picking which one we have a desire for today. I believe that's the wrong way to approach that argument. This is political capital that has been spent. It's actually water under the bridge. And I think that when the Palestinian PLO went to the General Assembly in November 29th, on November 29th, 2012, after the failure of the Oslo Accord, and we asked the United Nations, are we worthy of a state? We tried to negotiate it for 20 some years, it didn't work. Are we worthy of a state without Israel being the, you know, the deciding factor? The majority of the world said yes. Actually only nine countries said no. Israel, the US, Canada, Panama, and four or five Pacific islands that can fit in my bedroom. That's where the U.S. put itself. So the majority of the world said, yes, upgrading us to an observer state in the U.S., like the Vatican, so in the U.N. Yeah. So I believe that that's, again, political capital that has been spent. And we need to get beyond that. That doesn't mean that there's not an argument for dropping the two states. But that's not an argument that we should have a deep dive or a coffee shop. 
That's an argument that we have to have within the Palestinian political agency. And there are different discussions for different venues. We have internal politics as well, and people need to start to respect that. Up until today, the political agency, no matter how popular or dispopular they are, no matter how convincing or non-convincing, they are the representation of the Palestinians today, and they've accepted this two-state model. Mm. Secondly, the reason why we wanted to bring this up now is that the situation on the ground, as again, your, your uh, person who wrote in said, is deteriorating at a pace that has been unheard of over the last, I would say, 73 years. Unheard of. The amount of settlement building, the issue of Sheikh Jarrah, which this is a continuation of 1948 ethnic cleansing, whether it's the bombardment of Gaza, the demolishing of houses, the house arrests that happen every single night. A couple of weeks ago, my 74-year-old uncle was administratively detained for four months. He's in prison now. That amount of aggression, thanks to Trump giving Netanyahu a green light basically to do whatever he wants, has brought us to a point where we have to start to see if we're not addressing some kind of positive way forward, we will have another round of violence. Mm. I actually wrote that in 2019 in an op-ed at Haaretz, saying that we're entering another armed struggle period. And then we just saw what happened in Gaza at the beginning of the year. I would say here on Deep Dive, if we don't get serious about moving this forward politically from its roots, we're going to end into another armed struggle probably before the end of the year. I'm, I'm curious, Sam. I mean, I mean, a confederation would... I assume, be as part of one state. Now, it could be obviously a, a loose, you know, a, a state that's quite loose because you would have to be a loose state for it to be a confederation. Um, and do, do, so and I think my, my question is this, is that you, you, you've now got this Prime Minister Bennett uh, in Israel who's actually, he's, made no, he's not even going through the pretenses of talking about a two-state solution. He's not interested. He doesn't want that. Uh, he wants a one state, so he wants a Jewish state per se. But does that, does that not make it easier for the idea of the confederation? The whole issue of two states, just to make a note here, I've written about an article called The Asynchronous and Inseparable Struggles for Rights and a Political Endgame. I, I would you know, recommend people to see that. Based on my analysis, confederation is the implementation of a two-state solution. Not easy, but it makes common sense while maintaining our rights. Confederation for me is not forfeiting any more rights that we already forfeited, basically. It's a language, it's a framework for me to speak directly to the Israelis. For too long, we have spoken over the Israelis and tried to convince the international community. We did a very good job. The most places in the world, and even in the US at the grassroots, and I would say in the UK in the grassroots, we've made our case convincingly. What we've missed is the need to be able to convince Israelis that there is a future beyond military occupation. Confederation gives us that. The key for confederation is two states. That, that is the ingredient for a confederation. It's not one state, it's two sovereign independent states. The confederation part is what do those two states agree to work in joint efforts with? What they agree to work with becomes the model of confederation. What they decide they don't want to work with is something which remains to the sovereign state. So it is a conscious, proactive ability for two states to enter into, let's say for the sake of discussion, a contractual agreement on things they agree to. But yeah. there's no illegal realities that are going to be imposed on anyone in a confederation. The sovereign state remains sovereign. That's, no, that's, that's really interesting, Sam. But I mean, if uh, the trouble is with an awful lot of people, um, you know, who, who are attracted, would be attracted to the idea that, and, you know, in their own minds, they think, well, Sam must have, or, and supporters of the Confederation must have some kind of model that they prefer that's already in existence somewhere. Is it the Swiss model of cantonments? Is it a UK model of the devolved nations? Um, you know, how, 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 how might this work? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, you, you have fertile ground, potentially, people that you can persuade. Um, but they need to understand, but they probably might want to say, well, what would it actually look like? I would tell them, look at Canada as an example. Look at the EU as an example. But even if there wasn't a Canada or wasn't a Swiss or wasn't an EU, 
If there was no other example in the world, Bernie and I argue that a confederation would need to be invented for this specific case. If we agree with Edward Said, Professor Edward Said, the late intellectual Palestinian, who said that Palestinians and Israelis are not going to disappear. If we agree with that as a premise, we have to find a way to be able to live together. Those that want to call for a one state today, without the ability to implement it today, is basically saying, let this be a prolonged conflict, as if they're not seeing the deterioration that's happening every single day. What I would say is that allow two states to emerge. Israel, yes, you're going to have to accept the Palestinian state. Um, it is already accepted by the majority of the world. So you won't be breaking new ground. Um, and if you don't, that's okay. You don't have to accept the state, but you do have to get your military out of Palestine. Mm. And at the end of the day, living together jointly in a positive future is what we're trying to convince the communities, both communities, is more relevant than saying one side has a knockout punch that for 73 years has not come forward. So instead of thinking that there's a knockout punch, well, in the meantime, thousands of Palestinians are prisoners, more are losing their homes from house demolitions, and you have 5 million refugees in squalid refugee camps in the region. I don't feel comfortable doing anything politically that prolongs the conflict. Having said that, once there are two states and an end to the occupation, hopefully maybe in a confederation agreement, History doesn't stop because the Israelis and Palestinians reach some kind of arrangement. History goes on. I would assume different, more wiser generations of Palestinians and Israelis in the future will look at the two states, look at their confederal experience and say, look it, why don't we just become one state? That can happen in the future. But to say we can implement it today when we are at the weakest point in our political history and when the powers to be are ganged up against us, is saying, let's just prolong this for a little more to be able to take the moral high ground. And I don't think that's fair. It's interesting because nothing remains fixed in stone. And I'm sure the people who've got a longer memory um, will reflect perhaps what's been happening in Ireland uh, from a situation in the 1970s of repression and violence and, uh, and uh, killings to a, to, a, to a completely changed situation now. There isn't a, a united Ireland, um, but at the same time, uh, there is the prospect for achieving that, if that is the overall wish of the pe of the people of the whole of the the island of Ireland. Um, but you know, likewise, there will have to be an accommodation with uh, a distinct community that historically hasn't really wanted to have that. We've got a question, Sam. Um, unfortunately, this person hasn't given me his or her name, but it's a good question. Um, and it's, should Israel have an upper legislative chamber to the Knesset, similar to the Senate in the United States? It could be set up in such a way as to ensure that all ethnic and religious groups across Israel-Palestine have a veto against any one group wielding dictatorial powers. If I understood the question, it's about inside the Knesset of Israel, the legislative yes. body of Israel. Yes. I have nothing to say about how Israel wants to govern itself, nor do I permit Israel to have any kind of say into how Palestinians want to govern themselves. So whether they have a higher Senate, let's call it, uh, or a higher house within their legislative body, that is totally an Israeli decision. What I will say, even in our confederal uh, model, the Palestinian citizens of Israel would naturally remain in their homes and continue to struggle for their full rights and equality inside the state of Israel. I would even say I would hope that those internally displaced Palestinians inside the state of Israel today, they live in places like Nazareth, at one point will be able to go back to their villages inside the state of Israel. Villages like Ikrit and Bir'am, these are villages that were depopulated in 1948. And the Palestinian citizens of Israel, inside Israel, went to the Israeli Supreme Court and got a decision, a positive decision that they're allowed to go back to their villages, only to find that up until today, the police and the military and the administrative branches of government are refusing to implement an Israeli higher court decision. That's going to remain a struggle within the state of Israel. But for how Israel wants to govern itself, that is a sovereign decision of Israel. Mm. Well, Roger Waters has joined us. Um, he says, hi, sorry for being a little hey. bit late. 
I have to say that Roger did join us some time ago, so you're not that late, Roger. Uh, but his question is, so you, to, to Sam, so you're asking Israel to acknowledge the idea that human beings have inalienable rights. As far as Palestinians in the state of Palestine, I'm not asking Israel for anything but to leave and get their boot of occupation off of our necks, as well as to allow the refugees to return home if they want to. So what I'm asking for Israel is not any kind of recognition. They would be smart to recognize the state of Palestine because then they would have a complete birth certificate, which they don't have today. But for me, the state of Palestine is not tied to an Israeli decision. The state of Palestine requires today, because it exists on paper, it exists in the UN, it is codified. What, what's wrong with the state of Palestine today is that there's a foreign Israeli military occupation in it. And that, under international law, needs to end. How Israel wants to deal with Palestine, I would say, if I wanted to advise Israel, recognize the state of Palestine and think of how we can get together on a confederal model and work together where we agree and where we don't agree each state maintains their own sovereign decision making. But again, I do not put that as a prerequisite, nor do I expect my occupier today to make my job easy for emancipation. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you may have answered this question, Sam, already, but I mean, because this confederation where Israel, Palestine can combine work together where it suits them, perhaps over the environment, over water supplies, joint effects. But what you know, but but what happens, for instance, if the Israelis, the Israeli part says, no, sorry, you know, Palestinians aren't going to come back. Um, and also uh, settlers uh, in these illegal settlements refuse to go. Um, well, I suppose, I suppose. I lost you, Mark. I lost you, Mark. In the well, last I, I, yeah, it just, I dropped out there. I think I, think, I, I blame uh, Mossad. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about the two issues of refugees and settlements. Yeah, I mean... First, I, they, they should not be discussed in the same sentence because they are totally unrelated. Hmm. The issue of refugees is actually more an Israeli issue than it is a Palestinian issue. Israel as a state has a legal obligation to allow the refugees that left or were kicked out, it doesn't really matter. What matters is they're able to come back home. That yeah. is an Israeli obligation under international law. I actually just wrote a, uh, a book review of a new book that has come out. It is the handbook on, uh, is, on Palestinian refugees. I would highly encourage people to, to get their hands on it. Uh, it's written by Francesco Albanese and Lex Peckenberg. Um, you can find the book review at my site, epalestine.ps. Refugees have a right to come home. If they're not being given that right, like today, the struggle continues. Five million refugees are only going to increase. They're not going to disappear. That's one issue, codified in international law. The second issue are the issue of illegal settlers. They have zero right to be where they are. In the confederal model that we proposed in the New York Times, we would say that, or we said that, we think the majority of those settlers, knowing a Palestinian state is on the way, will probably go back to Israel by themselves. Israel promoted them to go to the occupied territory, gave them financial incentive to go. Israel, if it wanted peace, would be today giving financial interest for those people to come back to Israel. Otherwise, I would hope that a Palestinian state would accept those settlers. They're no longer called settlers. They're called Israeli citizens now because there aren't settlements in the Confederation. If Israeli citizens want to become residents of the state of Palestine and accept to live under Palestinian rule, I would assume that there might be some kind of model that would let that happen. They're not settlers anymore. They come under Palestinian jurisdiction and they can go vote in their home country if they want to, but they're not gonna vote in the state of Palestine. We will not accept an illegal reality to be forced upon us. Neither should anyone else. 
Uh, Roger comes back. He says, uh, I remember the 29th of November 2012. I spoke at the United Nations that day. The will is there in the General Assembly. Uh, but until we in the movement persuade the US to stop using uh, the power of veto, we're all ostriches. Um, and actually, you were talking about this before we came on air, Sam, that, that, about the, 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 the unrealized power of the non-aligned movement, of the G77 plus China, of the General Assembly, a resolution after resolution of the United Nations, that whole machinery of the, inter, of the international uh, order uh, multilateralism, multilateralism is absolutely uh, clear about the rights of Palestine uh, and the rights of Palestinians uh, for their own um, their own state. So absolutely. how how is this? How can this enormous force be remobilized? What is it? Because at the moment, you know, we've got on the ground, and Roger talks about the movement, the BDS movement. You've got youngsters right across the world, people right across the Middle East and beyond on the side of Palestine. But what we don't see is that pressure coming from member states on the United States and on Britain and the EU, for instance. Absolutely right. I mean, I mentioned this in one of my earlier answers. The community action today is of utmost importance. Non-governmental organizations, church organizations, uh, boycott movements, you name it. Now is the time where our impact can be felt because the world is seeing Israel for what it is, a violator of international law, uh, uh, carrying out crimes of apartheid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now is the time, especially as they're attacking ice cream. <laughs> um, now is the time to be able to put more pressure on our representatives, whether it's in the U.S., in the U.K., or anywhere else, to be able to hold Israel accountable, and to hold our legislators accountable. It's no longer acceptable for our legislators to turn a blind eye to what their states are doing uh, for the sake of being elected in the next round of their elections. We understand that this is a hard battle. We've been in it for a very long time. But we also see very clearly that there is traction in the right direction. So Roger is absolutely right. There, the world is with us. That's, that's, there's no question about that. The communities of the world, the populations of the world are with us. What we need to do better is to convert that into political will. And that takes a different kind of activism, one that we don't have totally polished yet. The missing link, in my opinion, today is the Palestinian leadership. At the time where we need pristine leadership, collective leadership, strategic leadership, we have a crumbling Palestinian political agency with very little democracy left in it. That has to change. I've been writing about it for years and I will continue to write about it until we upgrade our representation. And there's something coming as a surprise for Israel. They had a big chance to move forward in a two-state reality when Arafat was alive. They killed him. They had a second chance when Abbas took the reins of power and now he won't let them go. And they're brushing him aside. The next generation of Palestinian leadership will revisit all of the mistakes of the Palestinian agencies that were prior to them, and they may end up redefining Palestinian self-determination. My daughters, a graduate from MIT and a graduate next year from Harvard, are going to come forward and say, Dad, this is not working. Mm. Why don't we look at the Israelis in the eye and say, Israel, you win. You get it all. You get Israel, you get the West Bank, you get East Jerusalem, you get West Jerusalem. We'll throw Gaza in for free. And you know what else you get? Us. And we're going to convert this from a state building project to a civil rights movement. That's what's coming. And Israel is digging its own grave by allowing that to come. There's nothing wrong with that approach, except if you take the political calculus and the security calculus into consideration, today we are the weaker party. A one-state reality today is what we have on the ground. It is Palestinians being beaten up and the Western world covering up for them. I don't want to live in that kind of one-state reality. I need a stepping stone to be able to talk about a joint future. And that stepping stone is ending the occupation and showing Israel that there is nothing to fear from a Palestinian state. Just the opposite. There's a lot to gain by joining forces where possible. It's not going to be possible everywhere, 
But where possible, there's work that can be done together. And like you said, in water, in environment, in vaccines, even in economy, there are things that we can do together, but we cannot do them properly if we are under the boot of military occupation. So when people tell me, start today, do business with Israel today. I don't wanna do business with my occupier today. I'm at a disadvantage. I can't go to Tel Aviv to have a cup of coffee, let alone do a business deal. End this occupation, bring this apartheid wall down, and then I think we, we can start to build relationships that have a joint interest, that have an equality built, built into them. But to tell me I'm under the boot of occupation and the person wearing the boot is looking down saying, would you like to do business? No, I don't want to do business. Get your boot of occupation off of our neck. And that boot today is called a U.S.-Israeli boot of occupation. It can no longer be called an Israeli occupation only. Well, do you know, Sam, I mean, when you were also just talking about the Palestinian Authority there uh, and uh, essentially the, the sort of uh, uh, the, cre the, the cre creeping narcolepsy of the Palestinian Authority, I was thinking about the over this past year, the number of um, people such as your daughters, similar to your daughters, you know, young people, extremely erudite and clear uh, and uh, formidable. Uh, this new generation of Palestinians uh, are really quite, I mean, if, if, if they're at all representative, are really quite something to behold. And what you're saying there about Israel needing to wake up uh, because uh, the, of that solution uh, that could be a civil, a civil rights <clears throat> mass movement if, uh, if, if the Israelis will not move is, is a very, very interesting one. Um, look, I'm just going to take, there's a few remarks coming in. Um, and I'll come to, there's another question I'll just come to, because sadly we are running out of time. But Jana Maung, she says, uh, Israel is such a big military power. How can we ensure Palestinian sovereignty when Israel is so heavily armed, aggressive, and even the only nuclear power in the region? Well, there's another issue. It's Israel as is a nuclear power, undeclared, won't sign the non-proliferation treaty. Um, the international collective movement needs to move and Palestinians have to demonstrate that there is an alternative beyond the present leadership. Um, uh, here, here on Palestinian leadership. So who is it, says Roger Waters. Um, and uh, yes, so uh, great. Fully support Sam's position, says Ty Ebright. Thank you. Well, look. Um, a lot, I mean, a lot there. I mean, there's a lot. When we say Israel is a stronger power and nuclear power, how are we going to hold it in check? Remember, I'm a Palestinian American. I have a hyphenated background. I don't sleep well because of my Palestinian side and because of my American side. I also have this American uh, uh, reality, which also needs to be kept in check. Uh, when you have 800, 900 military bases around the world, and then you say the world doesn't like us, there's a problem with that. So the, the issue of holding powers to check is not only an Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, challenge. It's a challenge that we have to face across this world. The global South has to get together in making that case that enough is enough of having these global powers to be dictate our futures. So, you know, it's sad that we only get attention here when Israel bombs the hell out of Gaza. Then all of a sudden, the Secretary of State of the U.S. is sitting in Ramallah. That has to change. Policy needs to be based on a little bit more strategy than a knee-jerk reaction. This is a long struggle. Again, this is not, we, we've been in this for a while. The generations before me were in this. We're not starting from new, just the opposite. When apartheid ended in South Africa, I think if you would have asked someone a year before it ended, do you think it will end? And they would say, you're crazy. This has been going on for so long. White South Africa is so strong. The US is behind them and it ended. The same thing with the wall in Germany. These things reach a tipping point. You see the tipping point, you don't see the iceberg underwater. I believe the iceberg has been built and we're now above water. And where we reach the tipping point is yet to be seen. This week we had the Pegasus issue and ice cream move us one notch up. Next week there needs to be two more of each of those and three more of each of those. We will reach a tipping point. We, I can guarantee you, I can't guarantee you much here, but I can guarantee you one thing for sure. Palestinians are not disappearing anytime soon. And I'll end the way I started. Palestinians will accept no less than a full sovereign state. 
Israel decide, stay on the current track, that state will be from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. Accept international law, accept the concessions that the Palestinians have already made, and you can have a Palestinian state inside the occupied territory, and we can work out how to work together. It's an Israeli decision today of what they want. Keep digging their, gra their grave or put the dirt back in the hole and let's try to move forward. Sam, that's a very, very powerful message to end on. And sadly, we have to come to an end. Um, all good things have to come to an end. But what a very powerful uh, discussion that we've had uh, today with Sam Bahur. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, brilliant and impressive, says David Seddon. Um, Roger Waters says, I shall miss deep dive in the, in the break. Uh, we're going to have, um, we are going to have a break. Uh, we'll be back in the autumn, back in September. And we'd love to have you back on again, Sam, with us. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much to all of you who support Palestine Deep Dive. If those of you who haven't, aren't receiving it yet, do subscribe to Palestine Deep Dive. You get the best news and views from Palestine and the Middle East daily in your email. You have no excuses if you haven't subscribed. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thank you to everybody at Palestine Deep Dive, to Omar, to Alex, to Kieran, to Mac. And uh, until next time.